0: this is episode 91 from panoramic outdoors and i'm sheldon grant today's episode is brought to us by wool love if you don't know what i'm talking about type in w-o-o-l dot l-o-v-e on the old interweb and you'll see exactly what i'm talking about it's a a base layer there's apparel and it's all made with merino wool we've been running it for about a year now and we love it we they have everything from t-shirts tank tops for women uh underwear long underwear socks i love the socks and if you go onto their website you can get a 25 percent bundle discount and for all of our listeners big announcement big announcement we're going to give away gift cards for anybody that messages us on instagram or facebook or they can email us at panoramic outdoors at gmail.com and we'll give you a free gift card for the wool love website so you can put a bundle together plus use the gift card do you just tell me what other podcast chase is giving you a podcast to listen to for free and basically giving you free money
1: wait 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 let me get this straight all we have to do is all they have to do is message us or email us
0: yes message us email us and yeah let's do uh they can tell us where they're listening in from you do that very easy thing and you can get some free money from wolof
1: i'm gonna have to get a couple of aliases going here because this is sounds like a wicked deal <laughs>
0: All of your kids, your everybody will be <laughs> yeah. emailing us. He'll grow into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really good deal? We'll love is, um, you know, we've been working with them for quite a while now, and we love their stuff so much. We start talking with them and we're trying to find out ways, you know, we can give back to more of our listeners. And you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of listeners out there that are listening to Panoramic. That you know, we don't know where you're from, so message us, tell us where you're from, and we appreciate it. In return, if you're asking, hey, how can we help Panoramic out? Give us a five-star rating or comment on any podcast platform you listen to uh, or tell a friend or whatever. Just share it. Help us out, um, and we'll give you some free money. Have you washed your wool love in the last year? <laughs> yeah, I've washed it. But I was going to like – I had this like little thing in my head that I wanted to say, but now I can say it because I feel way more comfortable. Um, socks. I wear socks, obviously, all the time. My job, I got to wear work boots. And on the weekends, if I'm hunting fish and fishing, I'm always wearing socks – well, I'm a dude that doesn't get laundry done that often, so I tend to wear the pair of socks two or three times maybe in a week, uh, especially when I'm on the road in hotels, et cetera. The good thing about the Wool of sock is it's merino wool, obviously. It uh, doesn't stink. And like other cotton socks, you know, if you kind of get like sweaty or you get them wet but for some reason, they kind of like become cardboard. Um, these things don't do that. They're always super soft, very easy to, or not easy to wear. All socks are easy to wear, but they're just super comfy to wear. And yeah, I love the socks.
1: Yeah, it is some quality stuff. I've been wearing their uh, their T-shirt, actually. Um, I haven't washed it in about two weeks. And, uh, you know, the temps haven't exactly been favorable for um, the old uh, sweat production. And uh, absolutely zero smell to it. So um, I, I feel very stealthy almost in this thing, <laughs> knowing that I'm sneaking around without
0: a stink. Well, in those new shirts, they look pretty deadly. And uh, if I know people can't see Chase right now, but he looks like he came right fresh off the set of Super Troopers. He's got a, a wicked caterpillar on top of his lip. So put on that nice fresh wool of zip up tee or zip whatever they've got, whatever you're wearing. You probably look like some some cop there, undercover agent. <laughs> um, but yeah, how are you keeping uh, cool over there in the other part of the pr- other side of the province? And over here, it's been super hot.
1: Oh man. It's crazy. I know we got a little shot of rain this morning and uh, it was it was coming down pretty good for a solid like 20 minutes. And I, I went outside after and I like just stuck my hand in the dirt because it is so dry that it's like as far as you can dig the dirt's dry. And then I wanted to see how much rain how deep this rain went and I stuck my hand in there and it was like an inch before I was digging up dry dirt again. So good that we got a little bit of rain but still disappointed that you know it's not the amount that we need around here um i know a lot of farmers cattle and uh ag farmers are just pretty rattled right now it's it's going to be tough year for them unless we get some uh, a significant change in the weather here even like even right now as it sits i know the lots of the cattle are in rough shape so um not the cattle themselves in rough shape just like their feed options and their their hay fields and stuff are pretty limited supply right now. But other than that, man, I've just been hitting the splash pad with the kids pretty much. Um and uh the in laws have a pool, so I frequent that a lot and that's about it. What about you? How you been staying cool?
0: Well I've been uh yeah, I haven't been hitting the splash pad. Um but yeah, just basically air conditioning wherever I can find it when I'm not out in the field or doing whatever I'm Hitting the air conditioner hard, but some big news actually today. Um, it might cool off some uh, some outfitters, I guess, and some other people that, that benefit from, from travelers. But they, they're saying that Americans can come over with double vax here in uh, August. So that's really good. Probably helps out a lot of people that really rely on the, the Americans coming up hunting this fall. So that's super cool. Um, speaking of hunters, I will mention our guest today. Is cody robbins he'll be joining us here shortly but before we get to cody robbins i do want to do one more little quick shout out pay another bill pit barrel barbecues you've always talked to you've always listened to us talk about pit barrel barbecues and the pit barrel barbecue is an upright barrel system that we've been using for over a year and this is no surprise and it's probably one of the best smokers that i've ever used super easy inexpensive. if you had a budget of let's say 500 bucks canadian you can get into one with some accessories. You can be smoking meat right away quick. If you want to get into one, go to pitbarrelcooker.com. You can check out their website there. They have a whole list of accessories. They have their story on how they all got started, which is very, very cool. You got to check that out. And then in, in the United States, they got free shipping. And in Canada, they got a map where they sell that Pit Barrel Cooker all across Canada. So check that out. Go to pitbarrelcooker.com.
1: You know what I got planned for that baby this weekend? going to throw on a little um I got a uh, like a ham from um a wild boar but it's not a cured ham it's just like that that leg roast ham kind of thing and it's going on there for about 8 hours going to do a pulled wild boar and probably whip up some like uh wild boar tacos am I like invited for this wild boar or oh yeah I thought you were coming down this weekend
0: well, we're going to have to figure some out now that I've heard that you're going to make some pulled wild
1: boar. Yeah, pair that up with a nice little brewski and should be good to go. The other thing I want to talk about actually here quick, um, a little inside scoop into what's going on in the uh, the uh, technical world. I don't know how to word this properly, but uh, um, we, we got a little inside peek into what's going on with uh, iHunter's. With new app interface and uh man let me tell you they've they've stepped up the the app platform and they have some amazing stuff going on in there and i i i haven't gotten out to use it at all into the woods but i've spent probably hour and a half to two hours just like cruising around it and and uh going through everything trying to learn it so when i get out to the woods you know everything is running flawlessly and uh, it is pretty sweet, man. Pretty sweet. I'm, I'm excited that uh, we've been invited to, uh, to help um, beta test this app or the new interface, and uh, I'm pumped for um, everyone else that's going to get to enjoy this in the near, near future. In the near future, I can't talk today um but if you guys are interested and you don't have iHunter yet you got to check them out they have uh their app so whatever wherever you get your apps on your phone you're going to want to carry that in your pocket hunting fishing uh anywhere adventuring it's a great tool to have um so wherever you get your app check out iHunter download that app and uh they also have their online platforms and if you go to web.iHunterApp.com And you want to get yourself 30% off a public land subscription. Type in the promo code panoramic30. And then uh, they also have all the landowner maps for the province available as well. So um, very useful tool for anybody that that wants to get out there and find some new territory.
0: Yeah, I've been um, with my day job. I had to do a bunch of assessing in different parts of the province on the west side of the province this last couple weeks. And I've actually been using iHunter quite a bit on my phone app. Um, And kind of referencing it with um, paper maps, some old paper maps that I have, and just for my work kind of thing. And man, that makes a world of a difference just because it's updated and you can like bring up different, like different maps all together, right? Like not only landowners, but like, was it topographical maps? Is that what they call them? Yeah. Topo? Topo? Whatever. But yeah, stuff like that. Man, in in my journeys, so I'm just going to give you maybe like a handful of animals I've seen the last few days. I have seen probably three or four different mule deer, one decent mule deer buck. Um, I also got a picture of one mule deer buck. I've probably seen over, I don't know, let's just say two dozen whitetail, and, which kind of surprises me because when I am doing these assessments on these jobs, it's during the day, so like it's not like whitetail are out roaming around, especially when it's super hot. But I have noticed a, a few things about whitetail, and these are going to be like my own uh feet on the ground tips to anybody that has to drive around the backcountry roads in the summer days is a um does. when you see a doe, doe slow down especially when she's crossing the road there's been two or three times uh, a young fawn's been following her maybe two or three and i the first time i seen this doe cross road and i was coming up to her i didn't really think about it because i didn't see another deer in the ditch but with the longer grass and slew grass or whatever else this little fawn popped out and i just about hit it So instantly felt super bad that like the next couple of those that I seen throughout the next few days, I slowed right down. And yeah, sure enough, there's, there's little deer be behind them. But the other thing that I've noticed a lot of bucks. So, and um, which is a good sign for this year coming up. I mean, a lot of, I haven't seen any big ones, but a lot of smaller ones and then little groups of twos and threes. So that's always nice to see when the, some good antler growth uh, on a few of these deers But the last thing I was going to mention to you, Chase, is the black bears I've been seeing, like, I don't know. I couldn't even tell you maybe like 20, 25 black bears in the last three or four days. And I was, I was kind of reminded of a podcast we did with Corey Grant about bear hunting about a year and a half ago. But one thing that he told us, because I was asking him like, how do you, how do you tell when there's a, like, how do you tell when it's an actual big bear? And he went through some of the things like the ears and the snout. And you can kind of tell that way. And he's like, another way is like, if a bear can fit into 45 gallon drum, He's like, but if it's a really big bear, that 45-gallon drum will fit in the bear. Well, I seen a bear this week that looked like a freaking cow. And I <laughs> honestly God, thought it was a cow when I was driving. Like, it was probably half a half mile away when I was driving across the road. Or it was in the ditch going into the field kind of thing, into a pasture. And I'm like, oh, that's just a cow. Probably got out and I got closer to it and it was a bear. Man, was it big? But it kind of makes me wonder and want to just ask questions. And I don't know if you can answer any of these or if you have any insight on it. But like, what is the bear population like in Manitoba? Is it known to be a super high one? Do you think it's getting like higher? Is it something that maybe, you know, people should be talking about so they're not, you know, hurting moose populations or elk populations, etc.?
1: Yeah, actually, that's a great question. I can't remember who we had on the podcast before, but I think we asked that question and they they seem to have stated that it's been pretty steady. But I mean, you look at the encounters that you have with bears right now and, and like, Manitoba is obviously known for its huge bear populations um, outfitters provide just phenomenal bear hunting opportunities in Manitoba for for whoever is interested and uh, um, like as far as numbers goes you look at some of the reproduction on those things like those bears are having like three four cubs you know I don't know what the average is but you see a lot of triplets and even some quadruplets quadruplets, right? So, um, I know, uh, all the polar bear biologists that I work with, you know, when you see those higher numbers of cubs, it's often an indicator of the health of that particular species. And if you're seeing that a lot, obviously it's, it's the health of the, the population, right? Cause, cause that relates to food sources and breeding and, and everything that they need, right? If they're healthy, they're going to have more babies. So Um, one thing that, that I do kind of think about too, is, you know, black bears are pretty hard on, on, uh, on newborn fawns and, and, uh, calves and stuff like that for, for ungulates. So that could be uh, a tough thing to, to help balance out in that sense. But, uh, right now too, I'm, I'm kind of thinking like with these drought conditions, there's probably not a lot of great food sources out there for bears, like natural food sources that would be like berries and stuff like that. So um, my thinking is that you're also seeing a lot more bears because they're moving around looking for food too. So that could be uh, one of the reasons why you're seeing that many more bears, but their populations are definitely abundant in Manitoba.
0: Yeah. It's like, I don't know if it's something that as a conservationist hunter whatever outdoors person in general, that should be super worried about, but I just like, I don't know. I see I see good populations of moose, say, in like southwestern Manitoba, and now you're starting to see a lot more bears in that area, which I've never seen before. So it's just like the, obviously, I don't know, maybe they're following the moose around. Maybe, maybe they're doing this. Maybe do, they're doing that. But it'd be really neat to get somebody on to, to top of those numbers and see if there is some like um, proactive approach instead of reactive, which seems to be the way we do things in Manitoba. There's a lot of reactive work instead of proactive. But like I can't remember if that was Corey or someone saying like, but maybe like to get a hold of some of these numbers is to like, have an, have another bear tag or, or, you know, add an an additional bear tag to a white tail tag, maybe in certain areas. I don't know. Maybe that's something that might come down the pipe and, but this is just obviously my uneducated personal opinion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it's, is the bear hunt is such a, a weird thing too, because Um, you look at like the uh, certain places in the states and even ontario you know they had had trouble like maintaining that the bear hunt because people um whatever it is they have a certain um infinity to predators almost it seems like like the anti-hunting group so they they go to bat really hard for these these critters right like you look at what happened out west with the grizzly bear and i'm sure the black bear is next on the chopping block for the that the hunter groups out there to that they're going to be uh proactive for and i think it's so you got a couple of things involved there not only just are you are, are people thinking bear populations but you're thinking more like politics and and how how is how's the public going to react to it right and and what kind of um blowback are people going to expect there's people, places like new jersey in New York where the I think New York but for sure New Jersey the bear ban the bear hunt was actually like banned for bear hunting was banned for a long time and uh, they're getting those hunts back but it's it's uh not an easy road and you can imagine if there's there's zero uh, bear control how how many more bears are they'll be out there you know
0: feasting on calves and fawns yeah calves fawns people's pets Um yeah, there's. I th- yeah, bears. Do you know how the teddy bear got named?
1: I think Let I've. I've you, yeah. I think I've heard this story, but why don't you enlighten our our listeners here?
0: So Teddy Roosevelt, the teddy bear, was named after Teddy Roosevelt, and he was hunting in like the northeastern part of the U.S., somewhere like maybe Michigan or maybe farther east. I can't remember exactly where it was, but he goes to this like fishing or not fishing, this hunting camp, this guided outfitting business. And they hunted hard for a few days looking for bears and they couldn't find them. Then they had the one guide that was with Teddy and he, he was like determined to get, to get Teddy a, a bear. And um, so anyways, one afternoon, I guess Teddy got tired and had to go back to the camp to have a nap. He probably had too many rums the night before, but whatever. And the guide was like, so determined. He's like, I'm going to go find a bear. He goes and finds this bear, this black bear. And it's like sick looking. It's, I don't think it has mange, but it's not healthy and it's furs, not nice. And, Um, the guide ends up like catching it and ties it to a tree. So he runs back to the camp and he's like, Teddy wakes up. Teddy's like, Teddy, man, there's a bear over here. Let's go. You got your bear. Let's go and shoot it. You know, blah, blah. So Teddy jumps out of bed, grabs his, grabs his gun. And they also had this, uh, this like photographer from New York times and they go down the trail they find this bear. It's tied up to a tree. And Teddy looked at it and he's like, man, I'm not shooting this fucking bear. Like it's tied up to a tree. And like, it's all grow like it's sick. Like, no, this is not happening. So he let the bear go. Well, of course, you know you got to make some news. You got to make some media. The guy didn't put it on YouTube. I don't think cause it was quite a ways, or quite a <laughs> quite a time before uh, that happened. But he, uh, yeah, took some photog- photography of Teddy and told this story that Teddy saved this bear. So now it became a teddy bear. So this toy maker that was making stuffed bears named his stuffed bears, I guess, the teddy bear, and that's how it it all started. But that's the teddy bear story and that's like kind of my my own story. I, there's probably a lot I missed out, but that's the Cole's notes, I guess.
1: Yeah. I'm not i I I can't say I can correct you on any of those details, but uh like you said, that's that's kinda of the storyline of the of the how the teddy bear was was named. How many teddy bears you got? Yeah.
0: Man, the only teddy bear I got is you. <laughs> dun, dun, Good one. Um, but before we get going, before we get going on this uh, episode, but I'm just going to tell everyone it has been super smoky in Manitoba and there's some, there might be some little glitches here and there because of, uh, internet connection, like Starlink. Thanks, uh, Elon. We, he didn't probably adjust with the smoke that happens in Northern Canada from forest fires, but there might be a little glitch here and there, but I know Chase does a really good job editing our podcast that he'll probably get it figured out before the time this airs. But just to give you forewarning, there might be a few.
1: Right on. Well, should we welcome our guest?
0: There's nothing else to talk about. We should welcome our guest and stay tuned for that. Well, today's guest, you might have seen him on probably maybe some VHSs, DVDs for sure, YouTube, um, and a bunch of different outdoors channels. Welcome to the show, Cody Robbins.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to do this. I love telling hunting stories and I... I love getting to meet people in the same walk of life that I am or enjoy the same things that I do. So I'm excited to meet you guys, visit with you guys and tell some stories.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be great. And how we usually start the the podcast episode with our guests is we have five burning questions and they're basically questions that there's no right or wrong answers. You can answer them any way you want, short form, long form, I'm um, you know, fire them off to you. My first question is if you had one last meal with a drink, what would you have?
2: One last meal with a drink. Is there a time on this? No, it might be like a Tim Hortons donut and a double double. Um, Yeah. I might go with that. Tim Hortons, a carrot cake muffin and a double double. Actually that's what I have right now. I have it in my hands right now.
0: (laughs) That's funny. And actually I was going to ask you another question about uh, what fuels you when you're doing all that scouting and stuff, but I'm probably, I'm assuming that'd be the same answer. My second question is that if the Robbins family could only hunt one deer for the rest of time, would it be a mule deer or a whitetail
2: deer? Ooh, uh, I love hunting mule deer. Kelsey would say she wants to sit in a muddy blind because they're so awesome and wait for a big whitetail buck, but I would vote mule deer. deer. That's my gig.
0: Okay. So you and Kelsey go to a karaoke bar. What's that one song you're going to sing in front of everyone? Ooh. Ooh, Now, if you don't know the song, you can even just do the artist. Who what song from what artist?
2: I I would sing um oh George Strait. It'd be I would sing her a George Strait song. What would she sing me? I don't know. Um I I'd have to sing the fireman. Oh yeah. I don't know if Kelsey'd be a big fan of me singing the fireman, but I'd like to sing the fireman at that karaoke <laughs> bar. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Um my next question Who is a better hunting partner, Kelsey or Jim? They
2: both suck. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, fine. Okay, fine. Who's a better hunter, Kelsey or Jim?
2: Who's a better hunter? Well, my wife's going to be disappointed in me. The chance to walk in that guy's footprints for seven years and to be his cameraman, he he is one of the greatest hunters that ever lived. And that's comparing him to other species besides human beings. He's incredible. And that, it's, not that, it's not that he has bigger claws or anything. It's that it's his drive and it's focus and it it's untouchable yeah, yeah. that's that's yep. awesome my
0: last question for the five burning questions do you remember your first shed that you ever found
2: yes i do <laughs> that my very first shed antler i ever found is a little tiny cracked chalky white tail shed with no brow time it was a two-pointer and it had um a drop time that actually twisted out the back that almost mirrored its main beam it was a little yearling forkhorn. And it had probably laid there about fifteen years. It was chalky. The points were broken off. It was the very first antler I ever found, and to me, that was like winning the freaking Stanley Cup. I was so excited <laughs> to find it.
0: How old were you there, Cody? Do you
2: remember? I was a little, uh, eleven. Huh. Yeah.
0: To
1: find a to find a with a with it like a drop time coming off the back like that is uh, pretty incredible. <laughs> so that yeah, that it, that it, itself is kind of special.
2: It was insane. It, like you don't find little tiny yearling sheds with drop tines and he had a drop tine as big as his main beam below his G2. And I, I think I can still find that antler in my basement because I've, there's been lots of times that I've sold antlers off and just because they're taking up too much room, but I know that that antler would never get sold. So I'm pretty sure I could find it and it's still down there somewhere.
0: That's cool. Well, thanks. That's our, that's our five burning questions. And I kind of want to get right back to what you're almost talking about with, uh, with Jim that he was like, The best hunter um it all started for you with jim but before that even happened how did the hunting bug get into you like were you did you learn from your family what like how did that all start for you um right up to when you started out with uh working for jim
2: no one in my family hunted i grew up on a in a a ranching family we had cattle horses Uh, my brother had bantam hens chickens and foxes and skunks killed them all the time on them but um, we had guns in our house strictly for ranching purposes. If a cow got sick, horse got sick, if there was a fox or something trying to kill chickens or that kind of stuff. And when I was 11 years old, I was in a hockey tournament and I played out our games on Friday night or Saturday night and we were leaving the rink and I was all excited anticipating coming back da- coming back to play our games the next day at the hockey tournament. And when I was saying goodbye to my friends, saying, see you tomorrow, my dad actually stopped me. And he said, actually, you're not coming to the tournament tomorrow. I enrolled you in a firearm safety course. And I threw a dirty fit. I I didn't want to go to any firearm safety course. I wanted to go back and play hockey that next day. And I went to a firearm safety course with my best friend, Shane Hunter, the guy that I grew up with. He was my, like, before anyone else since the time I was five years old. And him and I went to that firearm safety class where you learn about different species of big game where you learn firearm safety and it sparked me there there was something that grabbed me about wildlife about hunting about conservation and i asked my friend shane and his family to take me hunting and they took me hunting and a couple other families at different times took me hunting and it ignited something in me that i'm so grateful that it did because it completely changed my life. I don't know where I would be at. There's no way I could be living a better life, doing something else right now than if I didn't go to that firearm safety course. It's, it's a very pivotal, pivotal moment in my life. And I'm, and I'm grateful. Um, yeah. So I started hunting when I was 12 years old and six months before that, I never thought I would, I wasn't, I didn't like hunters. I didn't like what hunters did. I, I was, I would have the same thoughts about hunters and hunting as someone in downtown new york that had never been hunting my best friend shane was a hunter they had big white tail bucks all over the walls in their in their basement they had coyote pelts hanging from nails they were they were proud of what they did they were proud of the wildlife they harvested and i was i was disgusted with that kind of stuff to me i just thought that was killing animals and as you guys know you get out there and you go hunting and you you take in all the things that come with the word hunting and acting it out. And it's not just going and killing an animal, but it's the farthest thing from it. It it reminds me of cameraman Richie and his fiance Paulina. Okay. This little Filipino lady. Awesome girl. Awesome. She came from the Philippines when she was 15 years old. We were just doing a a live to hunt episode on her a few days ago. And it just hit home for me when I was doing the voiceovers. This is a girl that came from the Philippines when she was 15. There's no hunting in the Philippines, right? There's, there's no big game seasons. There's, no, there's barely any animals to hunt. That's what she told us. She comes over. She's living in downtown Saskatoon. She's not a hunter. She doesn't know anything about hunting. If you walked up to her and asked her honestly right off the bat, hey, do you want to be a hunter? Do you think hunting's cool? Everybody knows what the answer is going to be, right? She met cameraman Richie. Richie took her out and showed her our world. He took her under his wing. They fell in love. And he took her fishing, fly fishing. He took her bow hunting. He's taken her muzzleloader hunting. He's taken her shed antler hunting. And that girl is passionate about it now. She had the chance, right? Think of how many people that live in downtown New York or Chicago or downtown Saskatoon or Brandon, Manitoba. How many people that will bash hunting and say that it's a bad thing? But they've never had the chance. They've never been exposed to it. They don't have anyone in their life to tell them differently or to prove them differently, right? And it's to me, it's a shame. It's it like I'm literally living the best life I could ever possibly live because of hunting and because of the outdoors. And it's because people gave me the opportunity, just like they gave Paulina the opportunity. And it's it motivates me to take other people hunting, to find someone out there that doesn't have a mom or dad to take them hunting and, and you know, that maybe has some type of interest and give them the chance to let that interest grow. That's that's exciting for me. And that's one thing that I really enjoy in hunting right now is finding somebody like that and giving, getting the chance to show them how freaking awesome it is. The things that yeah. we do.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like we've, I've told this story quite a few times on the podcast in different episodes, but like chase and I and Tristan it was one of our biggest goals when we started our program and, and doing the media and getting into the, into the podcast world and stuff is just trying to find avenues where people can connect in whatever way, shape or form they would like to connect and then kind of run with it from there get the ball rolling. And the reason why is like just a prime example is like I had a good buddy. um, Their brothers are both hockey players played professional hockey. They never got to go out ice fishing. Um, Once their careers kind of came to an end, they started farming, doing these other things. Well, now they want to go ice fishing, but they don't have an auger and they don't have all this stuff and getting them out for that first time. And they've just like loved it. And then now they have like the auger in the shack and they got everything. They go out by themselves. They take their kids. And it's just like, it just grew from there, right? Just from one little interest to go ice fishing. So like, that's really cool. It really hits home, I think on, on, on my behalf anyways, um, that you got to have that opportunity to go with another family and other families to get you out. Um, so that obviously started the drive and at a very young age. So you just kind of started running with it with, with hunting. Hey, like, um, what was, what was some of the things that you started out hunting or pursuing first?
2: It was, it was just like climbing a ladder subconsciously. It wasn't a plan. But I just started out enjoying the sport of hunting so much. Hunting with a rifle in November, and right after the first year, of getting my very first buck with a rifle, I was intrigued by muzzleloader hunting. And within six months, I was intrigued by bow hunting. And within six months after that, I was intrigued by filming bow hunting. And that that started at like fourteen years old. And it, I don't know if I just kept adding more. I liked adding more elements to it to make it more challenging. I. I I honestly think maybe what it really was, I loved hunting, but ultimately, I loved sharing my adventures and my stories with people. And the video camera was a chance to capture something exciting. I I loved coming home. I was just addicted to coming home and like crashing in the door and telling everybody about this white tail doe that walked by me at twenty yards (laughs) and how my heart pounded and how it was so freaking exciting and You know, some people would care. Some people didn't care. My dad might keep watching TV and not even pay attention to me jumping around talking about this deer. But a video camera was a way to capture that moment that happened to bring it home and to get people's attention and get them to listen to my story, you know, maybe more intently than me just yattering through my teeth. So it it, I really fell in love with a camera at an early age. I think I was 14 when I had a I took my mom's palm quarter out of her closet and she hadn't used it for years. And it was an old high eight, I think, and the battery had wore down. So you could charge the battery and only last like eight minutes. So you had to be pretty selective. You had to wait till the dream was pretty darn close before you started (laughs) documenting your story. But that's, that's what I really, truly got passionate about at an early age was filming my adventures on a camera and sharing it with people.
0: So you, you got that camera now on your shoulder or wherever. And you're growing up a little bit more. When was it when you're like, man, I should invest in something and, and actually start pushing the, to do better video or more video and showing people more of what I'm doing? Like, when did that start? Like, I understand you got the camera in hand now. When did, like, that passion, like, actually hit to, to, to document what you're doing?
2: I played around with just a, a palm corner from out of my mother's closet until I was about 17. And then I wanted to get serious. My I, I focused or my focus turned. To buying a full page ad. This was my goal. Buy a full page ad in Big Buck magazine and one or two other outdoor publications and promoting a video, just like Bentley Coben did. Bentley Coben Wildlife Productions. He's one of my heroes. Jim Shockey was one of my heroes. Bentley Coben was one of my heroes. That's what they were doing at the time. They were documenting hunting stories, making one hour or 90-minute videos and selling them out of magazines. they have full page ads. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be. Bentley or Jim. And I saved up my money. I worked three jobs. Uh, the summer I was 17 into grade 12. I worked three jobs. When I was done school at three o'clock, I would go work at a pea plant and pack grain cars, pea bags until midnight. I worked for nine months straight, three jobs pocketed a whole bunch of money or compiled a whole bunch of money. I went to Bentley Coban's house and I said, let's go on eBay. I have this much money, buy me the best professional video camera I can afford. And Bentley ordered me a video camera with his eBay account and it came to his house and he told me when it was there and I gave him all the cash and he paid for it with his PayPal or whatever he had. I didn't have that at the time. And I started hunting and videoing, working on that goal to produce enough content to make a video. And it was that fall that I just accidentally tripped into Jim Shockey. It it was, I was working six weeks on this video project and about October fifteenth, I go out with a kid named Jeffrey Colburn. He's a man now, he's one of my very good friends. We go hunting. We have a hundred and ninety-five-inch white-tailed buck walk up to us and stand in front of us at 80 yards. And with this new camera I bought, I document him walking by and I get outstanding footage of a hundred and ninety-five-inch white tail, which went viral in our community. You know, everybody was talking about Cody, this kid capturing footage of the biggest white-tailed buck living in the area. Jim Shockey would come out each year and he would come hunting whitetails about half an hour away from our place. So he heard through the grapevine that some kid videoed a great big buck. And I think really in the big picture, all he wanted to know was where this buck lived and he wanted to go and kill him. So Jim Shockey starts sniffing around, trying to get a hold of me, but it turns out the kid that I videoed the buck with was second cousins with Jim so jim shockey lines up a goose hunt with his second cousin's kid the kid that was with me and all of his friends and he made sure to let it be known that the kid with the video camera needed to be invited on the goose hunt so i'm going on this hunt and i'm honest to goodness i am i was so revved to be going to meet jim shockey i remember setting up the decoys that morning it was sleeting out and we're walking around we're setting up these canada goose decoys and jim hadn't spoke to me yet but I saw him speaking to my friends. And then we all decided to go and set up the decoys. And I remember one time I glanced over at him and he was walking about 15 yards beside me in the sleet in the headlights of the trucks. And he's walking with a couple of goose decoys in his hands. And I I literally had no strength in my knees. I could barely hold myself up. I could not believe that Jim Shockey was standing 15 yards from me in the flesh. We hunted that, that morning in the sleet, shot a couple of ducks, shot a couple of geese. The end of the shoot, Jim comes over to me and says, hey, are you the kid that videoed that big white tail buck? And I'm like, yep, I'm the guy. It's like, well, I would love to see that footage and I would love to know where the deer lives. And he got asking questions about it. I went home that day and I com- I recorded my footage of that buck on a VHS tape, but I didn't just put it on a VHS tape. He wanted me to drop it off his motel so he could see it. I didn't just put the footage of that big buck on that tape. I recorded three hours of does and fawns and sparrows flying by before I put the big buck. So he had to go through every ounce of footage that I filmed that year, if he wanted to see this big white tail buck. I dropped off the footage for Jim. A day or two later, he calls me up and he offers me a job filming him to hunt that buck if he could get permission. And he came and picked me up at my parents' house. I drove with Jim. We went to that area. We went and knocked on the landowner's doors. We got permission and we went hunting for 30 days to hunt for that 190 inch buck and while we were sitting in that blind waiting for that buck to fall he explained to me that he wanted to start a hunting tv show called jim shockey's hunting adventures he had this vision to create a show that wasn't like all the rest where you know it's all cutaways and one-ups and interviews it was a hunter's perspective right down the barrel right down the arrow and just exactly what a hunter wanted to see, what they could relate to, what made them feel like they were there with you on the hunt. And over that 30 days, we filmed that hunt for that whitetail on November 30th. He killed that whitetail buck, and I filmed him shooting that buck. And it was, to this day, it's still his largest whitetail buck to date. And wow. that was the beginning of myself and Jim Shockey in 2001.
0: Wow, that's that's quite the story. And it's kind of remarkable. It's almost like you almost had... Um... A job interview via videotape and now you're an an apprentice for jim and doing some video work um so you must have it was a long job interview 30-day job interview you obviously passed it what was it like taking that next step with jim like i mean you said that your knees were kind of shaky when you first met him while taking on a full-time job with a guy with probably high expectations and and criteria to make the best um, productions must have been kind of scary for you as a, as a new cameraman let's say
2: it, was, it, My emotions shifted so much so quickly with Jim. The day I met him, he was my ultimate hero. I could barely talk when I was around him. And two days in, he was like this ogre boss that was like so hard to deal with and so scary to be around if he was in a bad mood. But, you know, I didn't appreciate at the time, the seven years that I worked for Jim, he was like the grumpy old school teacher that you'd talk badly about behind his back. And, you know, you bump into another employee, be like, oh, Jim is so mean like he's so demanding or oh he's flying off the handle today or whatever but the one thing I took away from it once I was separated from that and you know doing my own thing again I really truly realized Jim gets the absolute most out of you he he demands 110% out of himself every day he demands 110% out of anybody that's associated with him and that's why he's gotten to where he is in life he's He's rose above and he's gonna go down in history as one of the greatest hunters of all time. And it's his drive, his determination, his focus. And I believe that I wouldn't have accomplished what I've accomplished so far if I wasn't exposed to seven years of Jim and had him teach me work ethic and and focus and drive and and hunting tactics too. He, like he's he sees, you know, you, you hear people talk about hockey players seeing the game differently or football players or quarterbacks or Jim, when he's hunting, he, he sees things differently. He's an amazing hunter. He, he dissects it. He pulls things apart. He figures it out. And he, when he's hunting an animal, he does not accept failure. He figures it out. It doesn't matter if it's a crocodile in Tanzania or a white buck in Saskatchewan, there's always a solution. And it's, there's so much that I took away from spending that time with him. Yeah.
0: And like, yeah i don't want to like glass over it too much but you you did spend quite a few would you say seven years with jim there um i kind of want to get into when you got on to doing your own thing in 2008 but before we get there you and jim hunted probably in a lot of different countries and i think i read somewhere like maybe 14 different countries you guys hunted together or you filmed in could you maybe 15, give us 15 countries 15 countries so yeah. could could you give me your most memorable hunt with him uh Anywhere well, in the world, or is that is that just too hard to narrow down?
2: <laughs> it, it's like so many experiences that are so unique. It's, it would be hard to single out just one. Um, I'll share a couple, a couple moments with you sure. on my adventures with Jim overseas. That I'll, I could get Alzheimer's and I, I won't forget one molecule of those moments. One um, one of the very first times we're hunting with Mike fell in Tanzania. We're hunting on the Rungwa River, and. You know, this is my first day, my first trip. I've been to Tanzania quite a few times beyond this, but this is my first time. I'm a farm kid from Saskatchewan, growing up with cattle, horses, hunting whitetails, mule deer, hunting hippopotamuses and elephants and lions and leopards. I was brand new to it. I was intimidated. I remember going over there, Jim, saying to me, if we get charged by something, this is a huge test for you. This is, you cannot be emotionally invested in what's going on in that moment if if a lion charges us or a buffalo charges us you're not a scared hunter running away you are a video camera documenting what's happening you have no legs you're not running away it you have no right to feel any emotion in those moments and i i remember like half falling asleep on the airplane not even really caring what he was saying i'm like yeah whatever like (laughs) pass the talk right and then And then we get there and we're sneaking down the rungwa river on this hippo hunt on the first day and mike fell as the guide and we're we're sneaking along at noon and you can hear noises and stuff and 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 twigs snapping but i don't know what's going on and mike is sharing a lot of information with jim ahead of me but i don't know what we're doing i don't know what we're getting into but we're hustling down this riverbank and I can tell things are getting intense and Jim's eyes are getting big, but I don't really know what we're going to be up against here. And then all of a sudden I realized we've backdoored about 80 hippos that are out of water up on dry land. Now a hippo is only defense. They'll, they'll bite you and eat you. But their number one defense is being in water. They like to get in water and they like to back up with each other and just stay in the water. And then nobody's going to bother you in the water, right? Mike Fell's idea. This is before I got to be really good friends with Mike Fell. So I didn't know how he worked. I didn't realize he was an adrenaline junkie. I had no idea what was materializing. All of a sudden, we're running down the bank of the Sarangua River, and 80 hippos just start crashing down the banks on all sides of us, like single file. There's dust flying. Like, it's like getting foggy with dust. And there's hippos going by us within seven or eight yards on either side of us. And these are like thousands of pound hippos. And in Africa, what kills the most people other than mosquitoes? Hippopotamuses, like they're, they're they're killers and we got hippos filing past us one after the other And i'm behind them and also i got hippos going by right behind me and, and mike and jim with the guns they're focused on hippos going by in front of us and I, I just will absolutely never forget my first time hunting hippos we we came down the bank right after they all went crashing down into the water past us and we went to get a shot at a bull and actually a cow came running out of the water and charged us and it's kind of funny because i remember now i want to take you guys back to the airplane ride when jim is saying you can't be emotionally involved you have to be tough you have to plant your feet you know this isn't about you it's about us and we're big tough guys and we're not gonna run all you see in this video footage when this hippo is coming at us is jim's nike spinning out as he's running back to saskatchewan (laughs) (laughs) And I can't say that I planted my feet like you wanted me to be because the camera's kind of wiggling. I was like shuffling. I I still video pretty good, but it could have been better. But that hippo runs right up to our pH. Mike fell and he shoots him like three feet from his barrel and drops that hippo. And just being a small town kid from Saskatchewan, Canada, that's something that I'll I'll never shake. It's a memory that I'll keep with me forever. And I had lots of crazy memories with Jim, but that's, that's one that I'll, I'll never let go of.
1: That that's pretty wild, man. Um, what, uh, I, I mean, you, you kind of put all this into, into perspective, but I think one thing that kind of, I think about when you're talking about hippos is a lot of people don't realize how big these animals actually are. And I've never seen one in person, but I've, I've had relatable incidents, um, in the wild where you just get floored with how big an animal is. Like every time I see a, uh, I'll walk up to a moose, you know, that, that we harvested. It's just, it's, it's surreal seeing that, that big animal or like we've spent a lot of time around in polar bear country, seeing big ass bears, you know, we're used to black bears down South here. Polar bears are just, it's like a, a mutant, right? It's, it's, it's just amazing to see such a, a sizable animal. What was it like seeing yeah. that, seeing that um, freaking hippo and like that close must've been something else
2: it's it's crazy. You know when you walk up the classic shot where the hippopotamus is pulling their top jaw up so that you can see their teeth and you realize how big they are when you literally have to give it everything you got to pick their top jaw just to open their mouth and hold it up and then and then you know Jim wants to take 200 photos. You know how people like to take a long time and take 200 pictures when they shoot a big buck and they want to get the right angle and everything. Well, when you're holding a hippo up and you're trying to get the right angle and you're holding all the weight of his top jaw, you know, you realize and you gain a huge respect for the size of those animals. I I probably would have known accurately at the time what a hippo weighs, but I would bet, just thinking back, I would bet 2,500 to 3,000 pounds. Like they're, they're big, really big, and really dense. Insane.
0: Um, so now that I ever got that kind of looked after, you started in 2008. You and Jim decided to shake hands. You went and did your own thing. How did that all start for you? I mean, obviously there's a process there, but – there's got to be a side of you where you're like dang i'm gonna do this on my own like was it a scary time was it a hard decision kind of maybe if you don't mind run through some of those uh those ideas and thoughts uh starting live to hunt
2: okay so um my last year was with jim i worked with jim up until march of 2008 and i i quit working for him and it it, it was a really dark scary time in my life jim jim had all the momentum in the world he had what was climbing up the ranks as being the best hunting show in North America and what what I think I think it's fair to say he could have the best hunting series of all time I I don't know how it will ever be touched I know there'll be a lot of people that might be offended by that but I think it's pretty fair to say that whether you agree with it or not and he was he was seven years into Jim Shockey's hunting adventures it was just rising into the top five on the outdoor channel in the united states he was just talking to me about starting professionals for two years before that premeditating and putting together the professionals idea and that was going to be something that was going to be you know more i was going to have more to do with the professionals than Shaki's hunting adventures not just the cameraman I, i'd been stating my frustrations where i wanted to i didn't just want to be a cameraman and an editor i wanted to have more of a role and he kept mentioning that this new project was coming and there were so many good things happening at Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures. So for me to go and decide to do my own thing was petrifying. You know, I easily could have sunk right off the bat. The chance, you know, for a Canadian guy to start a show in the United States, to sign on sponsors, a lot of guys tried it. And I, I don't think there's anything more special about, about me It comes right down to a situation where you know people or doors open for you or you you get opportunities and you know i didn't know i was going to get opportunities at that time but it was flipping scary to set out on my own i think one thing that drove me to go on my own was jim had accomplished so much in north america he'd he'd done his north american slam he had just accomplished what he wanted to and now he wanted to hunt all of the species in the world and I was at a stage in my life where it hurt me when I was away from home and wasn't documenting a big whitetail buck or a big muley buck. Or, like, I was completely obsessed with the animals that we have at home here in Saskatchewan, and I missed them. When we'd go on the road for 200 days and only be home for 20 days, like handfuls of days in between on a 200-day stretch, and I was pretty much forfeiting my hunting at home, I just missed it so much, and I, I wanted to focus more on that type of stuff. And that's what drove me to try it. But it was very scary going through that process for sure.
0: Yeah. I know um, you just kind of mentioned there, like you kind of miss out on your own hunting. And I know I've, I wouldn't say always talked about, but I've always thought like, being an outfitter, getting into the guiding world at some point when in my early teens would have been like the right career choice for me. But I remember I've got a few cousins that uh, are outfitters up in Northern Manitoba and they're just like, Hey, Dude, if you don't if you like hunting as much as you say you do, you don't want to be an outfitter because you barely get to hunt as much as <laughs> as much as you want, you know? So yeah. um but yeah, so live to hunt, you started that I guess in uh after the Jim Shockey projects and you and your wife Kelsey got that rolling at the start, is that correct?
2: Yes, I so I uh I wasn't dating Kelsey at the very start. I was on my own and I was starting Live to Hunt and then uh, the very first season that we filmed for Live to Hunt was spring bear season in 2008, and I actually, I think it was the end of June. The, the last bear hunt that we did that year, I took Kelsey bear hunting, and that was the beginning of her and I, and we fell in love, we got engaged, and we started working on Live to Hunt together. So it was it was Live to Hunt with Cody Robbins for a year or two, but as soon as we got married, we turned it into Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey.
0: Right. And i I must say like there's a few there's a few things I'm going to tell you. It's I think it's kind of funny in the small world type thing, but um, we used to have a deer camp down in southwestern Manitoba. Where, like, couple generations of of guys would go out down there and hunt. And there was I remember I the first time I ever went there there was um like a magazine rack in the living room. There's no TV in this hunting shack. Magazine rack and the first magazine on top was like a big buck magazine with Kelsey Kelsey Claypool on the on the cover I believe. And then, um, yeah. And then a short while later I'm like, I don't know, I can't remember if it was on lived hunt or whatever and seeing you guys together. I'm like, Hey, that's that girl from that magazine at the old <laughs> deer shack, you know? But, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, that's super cool. And that's another thing that I would like to add too, is like, I've been kind of uh, following along with you guys who for last forever. And it's just like the cool thing that I like about your guys' program, um, not to pump your tires up I- anymore, but like you guys have a lot of like family in it, you know, like it's, it's more than just Cody and, Kelsey, like it's it's so, there's such a good combination of, of hunting and family. And like, I don't know, it's just really good to see. And I really enjoy that part of your program.
2: I I love the family part of it. I love uh, Kelsey. And I took Berkeley, our seven year old to the Whitetail blind last year or uh, two years ago for the first time. And just sat there. We had really no intentions of shooting anything. We just wanted to take her. It was a good day. It wasn't too cold in November and it, honestly, when you take a kid out and they give them that chance to enjoy it, and they don't even have to enjoy it, but you give them that chance to enjoy it or not enjoy it, but at least they have that chance to decide for themselves. I, I love it. I'm, I'm addicted to it. It's, it's a good feeling when, when you do something like that for someone and give them that chance.
1: So I gotta, I gotta take you back for a second to that to that bear hunt with kelsey was that a first date or was that uh taking a new hunter out hunting or what was that situation
2: so for kelsey that was someone taking her hunting for me i i had big plans big hopes and big dreams (laughs) and i i wanted it to be a date and i like i don't know how deep we can go here and her parents are in the background so i gotta be careful but it's funny we set out uh She just wanted to go hunt a bear. And I didn't care if we saw any bears that night. I didn't care if we saw any bears that week. I just wanted to hang out with Kelsey. And I will say, fellas, that things turned out perfectly for me. And she's my wife now. But yeah. So we can say now that it was a date.
1: (laughs) Pretty (laughs) solid plan, man. And that uh, goes to show you for any single fellas out there, take a a lady bear hunting.
2: Yep. And you know what? I took her mule deer hunting before that. I took her whitetail hunting before that. And all she ever talked about was past boyfriends or boys she liked or dates she was going to go on and she patted me on the leg and called me buddy and then all of a sudden I took her bear hunting and I was the coolest guy in the world so <laughs> yeah bear hunting works oh, that's great that's awesome
0: um so getting back to the kind of timeline that we're trying to follow too, is that now you kind of got your your production place how long so that's 2008 to now what is that like 12 years 13 years yep um to today what do you got going on? I mean, from what I've read, what I've talked to Rich, I t- talked to Rich actually quite a bit uh, via text machines and everything else, but you've got like nine deer, nine mule deer, 200 plus, and nine whitetail. There's some, it looks like there's like some chapters you're trying to close here
2: coming up. There's for whitetails. We'll start with whitetails first. This isn't something I planned or premeditated. It, I just kind of realized it a year or two ago and I'm I- proud of it i think it's really cool and i've kind of turned it into something and i want to finish it but um a year or two ago i realized that i had seven white-tailed bucks over 160 gross off public land and i thought to myself that's something that's really cool if i could make that 10 like if i need to find like a a marker where i want to try and get to i I could have just kind of left it at where it was but i thought i think i want to try and make that 10 to say i i shot 10 public land white tail bucks over 160 so that's what i'm working on right now and um in 2020 i got a 179 inch typical five by five buck that was on public land and that was my ninth buck so oh, wow this year we're going to try and make it one more it's not really it's not a thing it's not a club it's not anything it's just i would like to write a book about it i know i know a lot of tv show people I see it lots on other on my friends pages my peers pages down in the states up here you know uh, a TV show person shoots a big buck and a lot of people are quick to say, oh yeah, I could shoot 50 big bucks too if there's people out finding my bucks for me or you know you guys understand what I'm what I'm getting at yeah and I I want to try and make that number 10 and then I want to write a book about it and just talk about you know when I was a kid, We didn't have a big ranch that was all locked down. We didn't have neighbors that had posted land. I learned to hunt on public land. And I'm sure there's going to be a time in my life where I've fully but surely been accumulating land and buying my own land. And someday I'm going to sit in the middle of that land and I'm going to hunt a great big old buck that I let grow until he was eight years old. And I know I'm going to get bashed. And people are going to say, oh, well, anybody can shoot a big buck if they had that many acres tied up. My goal is to have a book about the whitetail hunts that I've enjoyed the most, and those public land hunts, and about learning to hunt on public land when I was a kid, and just referencing that, and maybe having that to back myself up when I do shoot some big old post land buck when I'm older. But I, I just I love public land. It's it's a cool place. It, it's weird. You can go get you can go get permission from a landowner, and you know, there's a lot of good landowners who give you permission, and they're such good people. A lot of the times, if they give you permission, they give a lot of other people permission, and you still bump into a lot of conflict. And I have just some of my very best memories or most fond memories of hunting whitetails is on public land. It's a place that I really enjoy to be in November in Saskatchewan.
0: That's super cool. I got a kind of a quick question just off of the topic of getting permissions. Now that you are, you know, you do have a TV show and stuff like that, do you find that kind of hinders people giving you permission because you do have, you know, maybe like more of an agenda than just shooting a deer. Do you ever get kind of any kind of conflict
2: that way? Um, I don't think there's any written pattern or rules to the conflict, but I have learned that, you know, somebody will be your your very best friend on social media. They'll write you once a week on your posts and say, Hey brother, love what you're doing. You know, they'll support you. And then you show up in the live to hunt truck. In country that they hunt and you can literally not even be hunting there you can stop at a service station and it's crazy how drama starts you know people people get threatened and it's i've i've learned that i i just like now sticking to my own little spots even mostly places that i hunted as a kid you know where you know the the landowners the land that i hunt on i have 20-year relationships with the people and i know that you know that relationship is strong and i I don't like really going to look for new country anymore because it, ninety nine percent of the time it turns into conflict. Just whether local hunters feel threatened or whatever, it just always seems to be like there's some kind of friction there.
1: There definitely seems like like you have some really really like quality country um, that you obviously do go after, and and obviously you've produced some. Uh, very good bucks off of that. The cool thing about that. I find about pu- public land hunting, I guess is like, yeah, you do run into uh, a few other people out there, but um, I find there's like a select few that actually, if you want to get down and dirty and, and get back into some, some gnarly spots, you know, there's, there's not a whole bunch of people that, that are willing to put that commitment in. So, and I'm, I'm guessing some of those spots that uh, you head back to or, or uh, the deep and dirty ones.
2: And that's, that's the thing they're, public land offers you all the opportunity you want. It just depends how much effort you want to put in there. You know, I'm, they're coming out with that new, Or there, there's been a lot of talk of a new law coming out for permission in Saskatchewan. And it, it kind of scares me. It, I see both sides of it. I'm, I love each side of it. I'm, I'm on one side and I love it. And I'm on the other side and I love it. Whether it just kind of scares me for, say, a father, son or father, daughter, people that work six days a week and they get one afternoon to go hunting. And when they get out there, say they want to go hunt prairie chickens and they get out there and they have three hours to hunt. That new land law, it might take them three hours to get permission. You know, it might take them three hours to, to find the landowner where they found that one chicken that day. And it might make hunting so stressful and so negative that it might wreck it for them. And I'm not saying I'm against the new land law. I'm, I'm a landowner myself. And I think it also on the other side of it, it's awesome because it holds people accountable. Um, as a landowner myself, I've seen tons of I go out and I put up signs on our land and I put no hunting or trespassing without permission. And that way... I love people touching base with, you know, I give permission to lots of people. I, I bought some land myself for myself to go hunting on, and I've given permission to quite a few people to go hunting on it because I appreciate hunting just as much as they do. And I know how much they appreciate the chance to go hunting too. So I'm not going to try and wreck it for them. Um, so I see both sides of it. But going back to public land, public land, the sky's the limit in Saskatchewan anyway. there's There's so much public land. And you can make those opportunities, whatever you, you want to make of them. It just depends on your desire and how much effort you want to put into it. And if, if you want to get dirty, like you said, you can go find a big buck anywhere. You just got to put heart and soul into it and you got to work hard. And lots of guys just don't seem to be motivated enough to go and do it. But I, I'm here to tell you to get motivated, lace up your boots and get out there and go exploring and find some fun country. There's lots of good stuff out there.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the flipping over from whitetail to your, your mule deer, can you kind of elaborate what's going on there? There's nine of them, 200 plus inches right now.
2: Yeah. I have nine, nine bucks that gross over 200 inches. The same with the whitetails. It wasn't something that I was intentionally trying to accomplish, but now that I'm close to 10, I'm, I would be really excited or really proud to try and make it 10. I, it's funny. I, I, sneaking up on a big velvet muley buck with my bow is my like i crave it i really do and but in the last couple years i've realized that crawling three quarters of a mile my knees are starting to get sore my abs aren't as strong as they used to be when you're doing the plank for four hours it's i see that maybe i might not be doing it until i'm 70. and i like i'm not saying i'm older that i'm i can't hunt mule deer anymore but i'm gonna try really hard to make it 10. And then from whatever happens from there, maybe I spend more time going, you know, you know, to other countries and exploring and hunting different animals. But I, I think I'm always going to love hunting big muleys. And I, like, I love going in in my basement and looking at those big giant bucks. I love deer with character, love bucks with drop tines. And I love going down in my basement and looking at deer that we've had experiences with and, and shot shows with and picking up their sheds and remembering all of those adventures and big moments that we've lived and like i don't know what you guys have you guys hunted mealies with a bow and arrow no okay well it, it's exciting it's it's exciting to sit in a blind and have a big white tail buck walk within bow range but you're sitting in a blind or a tree stand and if you've done your homework you're somewhat you know invisible to that deer right and you're sitting in a chair you're comfortable you already have you know your shot process figured out and it's I'm not saying it's easier, but I'm just saying when you're out there with a big muley buck and you're laying in the grass beside him and he's standing up and he's wide open and you have to find the courage to pull your bow back, find your anchor and stand up and completely expose yourself while he snaps his head and he's looking at you. And then you have to take your time and calm your nerves enough to get that pin where you need it to be and let her fly. It's pretty exciting stuff. Like archery mule deer is to me, it's my Stanley Cup. I, I always wished I was a hockey player, and like I, I absolutely love hockey. I'm never gonna like with a dream. I'm probably gonna play wreck hockey and want to fight guys until I'm 80 years old. But mule deer, my Stanley Cup. They're I love them. Yeah. I hope you guys get the chance when they get to sync up on a great big muley buck with your boats because it's cool.
0: Yeah, and that that was actually gonna be my next question about uh, mule deer versus whitetails because I know Chase. I don't think has either. I think you're shaking your head there, Chase, but I've never hunted them. And that was going to be my next question. What is it about mule deer? And I think you just answered it. It's more of like a spot and stock compared to, you know, maybe doing a little bit different type of scouting to get sit planted in that area where that whitetail might come out. But that's basically what you're saying, spot and stock. And you're, you're basically, uh, I don't know, just always sneaking. eh? Like you're always looking for them and sneaking up to them.
2: It's uh, I, I Are just, they hard a pattern or they're, they're impossible to pattern. If you if you sit on a hill and you watch a big mealy buck walk down a game trail and jump a fence and go and lay under a choke tree bush, and you start thinking to yourself, man, I can go wait under that choke tree bush for that mealy buck, you're drunk. It's not going to happen. If, you know, in early season, when you watch a whitetail buck do something, when he's got velvet or he's just out of velvet, but he's still in his summer routine, you can almost bet the farm on him walking down the same trail night after night at the same time. They're Very patternable. A mule deer walks around like a blind Hereford cow. They don't, they don't have any schedule. They don't have any pattern. And I've, I don't know how many times I've tried. And I think I've shot one, maybe two, two mule deer bucks in my life that I ambushed, that I sat and waited for. Maybe that number's wrong, but and I've probably sat hundreds of times thinking that I was going to ambush a newly buck and that I had a pattern. And it's, it's impossible. They they make you look so silly so many times.
1: I, I, it's, it's interesting, uh, listening to you talk about all this, especially in the, the mule deer side of things here, Cody. Um, uh, if anyone hasn't watched sleepy story, um, a lot of these, the things that you're saying right now kinda are reminding me of that story and it's, it's phenomenal to watch It's phenomenal to hear you speak about it. Um, one thing I do want to ask you though, is, uh, your archery equipment. What are uh, what are you using, and what are what's a couple things that you think are are um, very valuable to like the spot and stock game out there for mule deer?
2: Um, when it comes to the spot and stock game, I think something that's really important is your let off on your bow, and another thing is not shooting too heavy a poundage. With today's technology, bows are shooting hard. You know, I I watch Kelsey shoot her Bowtech bow. Tech bow. And she shoots 50 pounds or 48 pounds, depending on the bow and her bows, her arrows are sizzling, you know, they're, they're shooting great. They're getting awesome penetration in the target They're, You know, you see so many guys out there, you can relate it to guys shooting rifles, you know, you go to deer camp, I've heard this a thousand times in my guiding days, you'll get six guys come into camp and stop. There'll be a guy in camp that starts razzing a guy about bringing His grandpa's old, 270, to deer camp. Like, oh, you can't shoot a, or a 243. You you can't shoot a deer at the 243. I brought my 338. You're never going to knock down a Canadian white-tailed buck with a 243. And you know what? It's it's not necessarily the size of the gun or the size of the bow. It's the accuracy and how you can handle that weapon and knowing your limits. And with bows, you know, there's been times where I've shot a 70-pound Bowtech bow. And I, if I'm not feeling perfect and awesome and confident, I'll, I'll back it off to 65 pounds and, and cranking it down five pounds. I can hold it that much more steady. I can hold it instead of holding it for 25 seconds, perfectly steady. I can hold it for a minute and a half. And when you're spotting and stalking deer, that's huge. If you know, you never know, you, you might draw your bow and be waiting for that opportunity. And if that deer is looking at you, or if he's kind of sees something and he's kind of locked on something, you have to wait. And if you have to let your bow down and you're going to scare them, as opposed to keeping your bow drawn back and waiting for that shot opportunity, that might get you a giant deer as opposed to trying to be Hercules and having the toughest, heaviest bow you can possibly pull. And I've, I found that being very helpful in the past. These new bows with the cams that they have on them and the systems they have, they shoot hard and they shoot really fast. You can, who cares if you can pull 70 pounds? You can go and set it at 60 pounds and you can hold that bow for three minutes and you're still going to crush that buck out to 60 yards. So don't worry so much about the numbers on the on your weight and thinking that you need that when you, know, you might be a lot more accurate if you're not shooting as many pounds.
1: Oh, man, I can totally relate to that. Um, I, I picked up a new bow last year and uh, I, of course, picked it up first thing, you know, shooting it crank it all the way up. You know, I want this thing to be a rocket ship kind of thing. Right. And, uh, so I take it from my bow shop and I start shooting it around home. And then, uh, a buddy of ours opens up this, uh, this, uh, bow tuning business and I take it to him and, uh, we're bear shaft tuning the bow. Right. And, and, uh, he's like, I got to crank it down a little bit. Your arrows are just flexing too much. We're going to marry them up here and everything's going to be great. And, uh, you know, don't take the wind out of my sails, man. Like, I want I want this <laughs> thing to be fine. But he's like, no, no, it'll be all right. He's like, I, I maybe drop like six or seven pounds out of it. It's still going to be fast. And uh, it's still fast. And it's really accurate. And the thing I noticed the most about it is instead of me having this conscious thought of like, okay, one, two, three, get ready, draw the bow and... You know, it, there's more thought that goes into that when it's cranked all the way up, and it it went down to it's not even a thought anymore to draw and hold that bow back. You know, yeah. and that I think that itself is just worth its weight in gold toward accuracy. And like you said, holding that bow that longer amount of time.
2: I I totally agree, and that it's just something I've learned probably since I've you know gotten a little bit more experienced, and I've kind of check my ego at the door it's a it's a great way to help yourself when you're spotting stuck.
0: right on before we uh kind of get wrapped up here um chase kind of talked about it the sleepy story it's one i've watched it now there's a lot of things i mean we could probably sit here and listen to you retell the whole story and we'd be happier than hell right but um we do got to wrap it up but the sleepy story what's that about um short form short little maybe a couple minute talk about Sleepy sorry, and where can we find it or our listeners? Where can they find that?
2: Okay, so what I truly live for, it what completely wraps me all in, you know it's funny. I get thinking about Sleepy and I just get frazzled. It, it, but he truly resembles what I live for. i I love the challenge of finding a giant buck going out in the summertime finding a big whitetail or a big mule deer that just literally keeps you up at night, that, that you just, it just consumes you and you want them so bad and you're up for the challenge and you want to, you know, anticipate what it's going to take to find them, what it's going to take to get them, what it's going to take, what it's going to feel like to hold them. And that's the way I've lived my life now for 20 years, since I started working for Jim and started live to hunt and sleepy is absolutely the greatest deer hunting journey I will ever live he 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 made me he made me break down and cry I don't know how many times and like he's just a deer people have cancer out there people you know people don't have their health people get in accidents there's way bigger things in life than a deer to be crying over but I'm passionate about hunting it it I absolutely love what I do and I love my life and sleepy literally is resembles who i am as a person he was a big mule deer buck we found him in 2015 he didn't have a name the first year my wife almost shot him with a rifle tag it's a long story but she wanted to judge deer for herself and not have me tell her what deer to shoot and i watched this beautiful mule deer buck stand at 85 yards thinking in my head boy i hope my wife shoots this deer and she never did and when the buck ran away she turns back and says to me I want to shoot that buck now. Why didn't you tell me to shoot him? And it's, it's a huge chapter in the story. And it would take forever for me to tell you that whole portion, but she never shot that four-year-old beautiful mule deer buck. And down the road, he turned into the greatest deer in my life. The next year we named him, we called him sleepy. We had an encounter with him in a hayfield. He fell sound asleep. He was 90 yards away. His legs were in the air. Like he was dead and bloated. Like he'd been hit by lightning. And I could have ran up to him and shot him laying there snoring on the ground, but he had a little four corn wingman. So that's the night. We called him sleepy over the next four years. I had the most exciting encounters with that one buck time after time, after time, he lived on public land. I never got him. I missed him three years in a row with my bow and arrow. And like I mentioned before, there's so many times this deer literally just dropped me to my knees and made me cry. Like I found his shed antlers, year after year after year i found three antlers off uh i found three single antlers off this one buck over a hundred inches i found his entire collection except for one antler in 2019 on october 3rd cameraman ritchie and i attempted to get them like we did hundreds of times over five years and we got him. and i remember thinking you know there was a 99 percent chance that that deer Would have been killed by another sportsman he lived on public land i never thought with the amount of effort and the amount of heartbreak that we went through that it would ever actually come together the way we always hoped and i thought that if it did ever come together cameraman richie was with me on every single stock every moment that i lived with that deer, he was there and i thought if it ever did come together i would i would lose my mind i would throw my hat, I would throw my bow, I would yell and scream and like jump into the glass like I won the Stanley Cup. And the moment that I got that buck, I was just silenced. I like, I realized the greatest journey I will ever live was over. And it was insane. And it's a story or a documentary about hunting a buck that we put together. It's called The Sleepy Story. And it's on Vimeo right now. And it's if If you're a passionate deer hunter, you love big bucks, whitetail bucks, muley bucks. If you're passionate about letting a deer grow and reaching his peak potential and tackling the challenge of trying to get them, it's to me, you got to see it. It's like, it's my baby. Everybody thinks their baby's cute, but I've watched it. I don't know how many times I've watched it. I thought I would get sick of watching it when we were editing it and it just, it just, tore me up every time I watched it I'm very proud of it and I somehow some way over the next 20 years I somehow want to find a way to get every single person that's passionate about big deer to watch it I don't know what the answer is I don't know how that's going to be possible but I'm going to try over the next 20 years that's my goal
0: yeah I had the chance to watch it and I know for you like I don't know. This is just my personal opinion, I guess, about the whole sleepy story. I watched the documentary and it was like, it's everything that we just talked about tonight. Like it was the people involved family. It was, you know, hard work, determination, having a, an ag- like certain agendas and, you know, failure and then getting up and doing it again. And that's like exactly what, why we wanted to get you on the podcast as well. You know, you're a good storyteller. You still tell an amazing story. And it went from like this, big deer that kelsey had to the big deer at the end but at the end i I don't know to me it just almost seemed like it didn't matter that it was a big deer anymore it was just it was just i don't know the story was just amazing so anybody that is listening to this podcast you got to go and check that out um i thought it was you know double thumbs up on my end for sure um live to hunt
2: appreciate you watching
0: yeah uh live to hunt um also does more than just uh whitetail and mule deer like what other types of um animals you guys pursue on your on your show
2: we we have focused um since we started live hunt we have focused on north american big game elk moose bighorns. you know the big stuff is what we're really excited about um something that's new and exciting we just bought and we're starting a black bear outfitting territory and i just oh, nice released it on social media today and it's i think it's something something that's been missing in my career i love the chance to take people hunting you know, I've guided a whole bunch in my life. I guided before I worked for Jim for whitetails and bears. And I, I guided a whole bunch for Jim in the Yukon, Vancouver Island, Saskatchewan. And since I started Live to Hunt, I haven't been doing the guiding. And I'm, I'm just really excited at the chance to take other people hunting that that love what we love. So I think, I think that'll be fun too. That's cool.
0: We're actually... Um... We were actually having a few discussions about black bears and stuff earlier today, Chase and I, just, there's a a lot around, it seems like in Manitoba. Um, But yeah, other than that, um, where else can people find you? You got a couple social media channels. Is your stuff also found on YouTube there, Cody?
2: Yep. We have a YouTube channel. It's Hunt with Cody and Kelsey. Um, We're on Instagram. We try and post as much, you know, at least once a day on Instagram, just sharing what's going on in our lives, whether it's hunting or kids or family or, Texas longhorn cows or whatever. And it's uh it's live to hunt with Cody and Kelsey. And it's the same on Facebook as well. And our television show airs on Sunday evenings on outdoor channel in the United States. And it airs also on Sunday evenings at the same time. at 7.30 PM Eastern time in Canada on Sportsman's Canada. Nice.
0: Well, this is about the time where we try to wrap things up. Chase, uh, do you have any final <clears throat> thoughts for maybe our little round table or ending?
1: Man, it's it's certainly been a pleasure just to uh, honestly uh, sit back for most of this one and take it all in, Cody. You sure certainly uh, did uh, the Cody Robbins amazing storytelling, and I think the thing that I took away the 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 most from from this episode here is the thing that I love the most about this is that you came up as a non-hunter, and now you've you've uh, grown into this this phenomenal um hunter and not only are you uh doing a great job of that but you also have a a vested interest in uh really introducing other non-hunters into the outdoors and um given your the the strength of your passion in this you know it's it's i think it's one of the best things that we can do as hunters is just to have a person like you in that position and just being a leader for outdoors folks, especially in Canada here.
2: It's it's very important. I, I think we all have to do our part as role models and also do our part, you know, in introducing other people to our passion and what we love, because, you know, they can enjoy it just as much as we do. So that's 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 an important thing.
0: Yeah. And just on my end here, before we let you go, Cody, I'd just like to say a few final thoughts um same as chase like thanks for coming on you've been one of those guys you know i i don't know if i want to say this or not but i'm gonna say it anyways is that a lot of people have asked uh, me that are non-hunters or you know like you know i might have said oh you know cody robbins is coming on like oh who's that guy like i i don't know anything about hunting i'm like and i always say well do you know who Wayne Gretzky is. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, well, that's Jim Shockey. And you know, who Sidney Crosby is and they're like, yeah, I'm like, well, that's maybe Cody Robbins in Canada. for hunting. <laughs> So I always, I mean, you're, you're top of my list when it comes to, uh, to, to watching media, hunting media in the outdoors. Um, thank you very much for everything that you've done throughout the years. I mean, it's, it's been a big part of what we're doing. Um, you're a good influence on a lot of people, so don't ever stop doing what you're doing.
2: I I appreciate it, and I appreciate you guys very much, and I appreciate what you're doing. I'm excited to be a part of it, and I wish you guys all the luck in the world, and to keep rocking on and getting cool people on here, and giving us entertainment to listen to when we're on those cruises, on those long scouting days, eh? Yep,
0: right on, Cody. Well, thanks for your stop, or Thanks for coming on, and maybe we'll get you on sometime soon. I mean, we got lots to talk about. I think in the future, maybe some shed hunting or something else along those lines. So. Keep in touch and we'll talk to you soon.
2: I'm here, brother. I'll be ready. Right on.
0: And that was episode 91. Cody was amazing. It was just really good to sit down with a guy that's, you know, his whole life is around hunting, being outdoors and family. It's super great to get those guests on. Super happy with that episode. On our way out the door here on this outro, I just want to give our listeners a few heads up. And I got one question for Chase before we go few heads up for our listeners don't forget to rate us don't forget to comment on your podcast platforms don't forget to check out our store if you want to support us this is a great way of doing it we've got some awesome merch in there some new hats we've got uh tank tops some new t-shirts for the summer and sweaters um buffs whatever you think oh and we got blaze orange hats coming down the pipe so if you're looking for a new hat or two for this hunting season coming up um yeah, check us out. Speaking of new hunting seasons coming up, Chase, archery season I would say is like close to a month away. Have you shot that bow of yours yet?
1: That's terrifying. Um I've I'm like a complete uh 180 of what I've been doing last year. Last year I was shooting lots, shooting every day. This year I'm very sporadic in my shooting, my target practice. Um I was just talking to Tristan. Oh no, I was talking to you earlier And I told you I only got two arrows right now So I gotta make a trip to the local archery shop And uh, grab some arrows And then, uh, yeah, start hammering out some bullseyes
0: What's local archery shop for you? Is that um, Harvester? Uh,
1: no, uh, Harvester doesn't have any archery gear there I usually go to Heights to get my stuff They, they always treat me well there And, and uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so that's where I buy all my
0: stuff Nice. That's a, that's a good spot. I've been there a few times when I get my, most of my archery stuff, I go to Joe Brooke and Brandon here. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, the funny thing was is last year I had about four arrows left and before our elk hunt, I wanted to get another four just, you know, for whatever reason, maybe I had four or six left and I had a couple practice ones out of those. And so anyways, I went to go and buy some more and they discontinued the arrow that I was working with before. So I had to buy an actual heavier arrow, um, so about three weeks ago, I took that arrow out and adjusted everything and got it shooting uh, pretty good at about thirty yards with this new arrow. So now I'm excited to uh, throw some broadheads in there and start actually shooting um, with my actual like shooting arrow, right? Yeah. So, uh, nice. But yeah, I'm a few weeks away from that yet. I mean, i will be doing a lot of field point shooting yet, but I'm excited to finally get the finishing touches. It's always like one of my favorite parts about target practicing or practicing for this upcoming upcoming season is knowing your yardage knowing you're shooting straight and um it's just like riding that bike getting back on that bike and i was kind of like you this summer i should have shot more this summer but i didn't um so i'm excited to start shooting anyways we uh thank everyone for listening to episode 91 chase you got a few last words you might as well say your uh, final thoughts shoot straight
1: keep the love man on your hip and keep your bait fresh folks thanks for listening